Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McCavely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 62nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So last week, obviously, the major uh, headline, Matt, was the selling that hit the U.S. markets in particular, and it's just interesting how quickly people forget that um, you know, markets do go down sometimes, and there's actual risk in stocks. They just don't go up every day, Mark. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting because of what we went through in February and March. But um, people are very quick to forget what that feels like, so it feels not normal to them. Right? Absolutely. I mean, go back to those podcasts we had where you know we were attempting to do our best to be the voice of reason, and then all of a sudden, you know. August hit and the greed factor was back. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the FOMO, the fear of missing out. FOMO. I like to call it. Um, so we'll start off as we always do and recap the performance so far, so far uh, month uh, to today, which is September 10th. And for the year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on August 9th, uh, or excuse me, September 9th. And the data is from Coifin. So the S&P 500 index is down 2.9% for September and up 5.31% for the year. The Dow down 1.72% for September and down 1.93% for the year. The NASDAQ down 5.29% for the month and up 24.29% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is down 2.12% for the month and down 8.17% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States down 0.32% for the month and down 4.27% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.12%. The two-year Treasury yield currently sits at 0.15%. And the 10-year Treasury Yield is at 0.70%. Before we move on, Matt, everyone's making a huge deal out of uh, tech selling off last week. But again, we're just in the, I think, the majority of generations these days want the instant gratification. And seeing tech being down 5.29% for the month of September so far is freaking people out. But it's still up over 24% for the year. That's right. You have to gain perspective. And you're not going to have these types of moves in these stocks without, you know, a, a, a period of a sell-off or a period of consolidation. It's just not realistic, mm-hmm. right? And um, I'm not advocating that uh, that trend is going to continue or not. But to think that you know these things can't or will not take a break, it would be naive. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to need a lot more evidence than the first ten days of a month to see a major trend reversal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been in play for, for months. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, and again, just a, the contrarian in me is that when people are making a huge deal about tech selling off this much, usually sounds the alarm that it's close to being over. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. You know, the analogy for uh, listeners is, you know, um, these corrections move stocks from the weak hands to the strong, the strong hands. Strong hands. Yep. That's right. 
Um, okay, so the big news and current headlines from the week, as we just discussed, um, it was the largest sell-off that we've seen since June last week. And obviously, uh, as the performance numbers show, tech was hit the hardest. Um, next that I have, Matt, is about the Global Purchasing Managers Index. And can you just take a second and re-explain that for people before I move on with that? Yeah, it's going to be a um, the PMIs or the Purchasing Managers Purchasing Managers Index is a way to kind of gauge mainly manufacturing. Now, there is a services-oriented one, but it's a way to benchmark and gauge manufacturing activity in comparison to history. And then there's a one that looks at a global, and then you can actually look at it country by country in addition. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say is 50 is break-even, meaning no change. That's kind of the, and anything above 50 is a positive rate of change. You're in a, an expansion. Yes. And anything less than 50 is a, is a contraction. Yeah. So okay. it just, it's a way to monitor economic activity from country to country. That's right. And just don't forget 50 is the break even listeners. Yeah. So these were uh, released last week and most economies are improving um, in trend and manufacturing to uh, continue to outperform the service sector. Um So some numbers here, China's manufacturing PMI printed 53.1, the highest reading since January of 2011. It's extremely strong. They're spending a lot of money on stimulus in that country right now. Yeah, they are. The Euro area's purchasing managers index was at 51.7, and the U.S. manufacturing was at 56, which is the strongest reading since November 2018. So I don't want to play that down. That's a strong, strong number, Mark. Yeah, yeah, very. So... Again, just more um, things that you might not hear every single day that point to the fact that underlying good times could be ahead over the next year. Yeah, underlying data is encouraging, Mm -hmm. I guess is a good way I would put it. Yep. And the last thing I had was the Labor Department announced last Friday that U.S. employers added 1.4 million jobs in August while the unemployment rate fell to 8.4% from July's 10.2%. And the number of people filing for first-time unemployment benefits declined from over 1 million to 881,000. Another stat on that is the uh, payroll processor ADP. Their August private sector jobs report showed uh, creation, job creation more than doubled from July to August. Um, But it's not all great news, Matt. Um, There's 29 million people that are still receiving unemployment benefits as of mid-August, and the U.S. had about 11.5 million fewer jobs than it did in February, which was the month before the coronavirus hit the U.S. economy. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is another one of those stats that, you know, the market back in February and March was pricing in all of the negative data, but now we're kind of on that upswing, right? So, you know, the market was forecasting that it's been so strong since March until now that, you know, we're eventually unemployment's going to get back down to the three or four percent levels. And I think that's what you're seeing. And that's playing into the fact that why the market has been so strong. Now, I think this is an excellent point, And I think we should uh, talk a little deeper for the listeners. So back in February and March, you were mentioning on the podcast Listen, the market right now is pricing in all this uncertainty. It is forward looking, right? And what happened? The market overly priced in too much risk. 
And as things weren't as bad as you had stimulus via the Congressional CARES Act, as the Federal Reserve restarted all of those liquidity programs for the great financial crisis, the market came roaring back. It overpriced in risk. Mm -hmm. And so now when people are sitting there and saying, well, Mark, why is the market doing so well when my perception of the economy is nothing like that? And you always say in the podcast, remember, the stock market is not the economy, and the economy is not the stock market. Mm -hmm. But this is a good way of looking and saying, forward-looking, the market is pricing in better times right now. Right. Now, one could argue, is it pricing in too rosy of a future picture, mm -hmm. or is it not pricing in enough optimism? Right. And that's what makes a market. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that kind of leads right into my next point, Matt. Um from a tweet that I saw this week. So this was a tweet by JC Parrots on September 1st. He always has good stuff. He does. He's a he's a technician, a market technician, and I, I really do respect his work, so you can check him out on Twitter. Um, but he tweeted on September 1st, it's not my fault the trend is up. And he posted this picture, which we'll list to our show notes. And if you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, hover over the podcast tab and click show notes, you can see this chart. And it shows uh, one, two, three, four, five, six different sectors in the U.S. economy and their uh, spider ETFs. So these are um, exchange traded funds that uh, are shown on this chart. That mimic a sector of the S&P 500. Right, exactly. And again, this was on September 1st. Consumer discretionary at an all-time high. Boom. Technology, all-time high. Boom. Healthcare, all-time high. Boom. <laughs> Communications, consumer staples, and materials, all-time high. So my comment is, this is not evidence of a weak market. If you have sectors aggressive sectors in the U.S. economy that are trading at all-time highs, that is not the definition of a weak market. And me personally, in my opinion, I want to be involved in these markets right now. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. And it's interesting because materials hasn't hit an all-time high since late 2017. So, you know, consumer staples and communications and healthcare and technology and discretionary all hit all time highs in end of 2019, it looks like. But, you know, in my opinion, it's just hard to argue that we're going to be in for another 30 percent correction when these sectors look so strong, in my opinion. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, so again, really good chart. So check that out on our website. If you do get the chance that should be up today. Um, the next one was a really interesting series of tweets by, uh, Chamath and I, his, I'm going to butcher his last name, Polly Hapatia. Okay. His name is, I think he did pretty good there. So he's involved in private and public markets and he does a pretty good job on Twitter explaining his opinions, but this one had to do with the risk-free rate. And for people not familiar with that, I'm not saying the U.S. government, that is a risk-free rate and there's zero default risk. I'm not saying that. That's just what's been in over history, what people have called it. So That's I'm going to put air quotes around that. That is correct okay. statement. So everything when it comes to investing, 
is usually valued against a risk-free rate. And Chamath is saying, using the risk-free rate as the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, that there's virtually zero default risk, okay? So that's what he's saying. Yeah, and I think historically the context has been, well, if the United States government defaults on debt, you have a lot bigger problems. Right, exactly. I think that's the premise behind yeah. it. Okay. So he goes on, and this is going to be a little bit of a long read here, but I think this is really good and important. He says, the risk-free rate is the safest way to make money and is what the government pays you via U.S. bonds or other securities that have, in quotes, zero default risk. And again, this is in quotes because the U.S. government has yet to default on its debt, not meaning that they can't in the future. But, you know, publicly traded companies have never been uh, considered zero default risk because uh, several companies default on their debt every year. So that's not uncommon. I agree with everything so far. So he continues and says, this is in quotes for a reason. When you buy something, a stock, a bond, a house, you are implicitly or explicitly deciding to sign up for the return that it will give you versus the risk free rate, which you could otherwise get. For example, do I buy Apple? or buy a U.S. 10-year treasury bond. In 2000, when the 10-year risk-free rate was 6%, we had the top of the tech bubble. The bubble burst in part because you could get 6% from Uncle Sam, and when enough people asked this question, they sold their stock, the bubble burst, and bought bonds. Now, think about the similarities and differences with today. The similarities are to some that we are, again, focused on long-term growth and no near-term cash flow. The big difference, though, is that our risk-free 10-year rate in 2020 is now 0.66% versus 6% 20 years ago. Huge. If you sell an expensive stock today, what do you do? Buy bonds, but they're no longer giving you the near-term cash flow. So for many, it's better to own a stock. All stocks have an embedded option for future cash flow versus a zero cash flow bond today with a zero option value in the future. But what about zero default risk? Isn't that something? Isn't that worth something? In part, the Fed's policies have eroded people's trust that it's worth anything. It's more likely that Apple or Amazon are zero default risk today than the U.S. government. Investors frustrated with a worthless risk-free rate become increasingly biased to U.S. equities. That's a very interesting series of tweets. Yeah, because I mean, I think and again, just my personal opinion could make the argument that some companies are uh, have better financial positions than some governments around the world. So uh, I, accurate. I do. We see can't some give examples in the that. podcast, but accurate. Yeah. So in our opinion, again, it's just a different environment that we're in that, you know, I think I agree with Chamath that I, for in orbital in order for a bubble to burst, if there even is a bubble, and it's anyone's discretion on there, if there is or isn't, yep, you need to have another option where you can put your money, and it's still going to get you something, not 066 percent per year, right? That's right. And so remember, uh, listeners, the goal of the Fed right now was to push rates so low. They are forcing you to do something else with that money than keep it in cash or keep it in a treasury bond or keep it in a CD or keep it in savings. Mm -hmm. And this is the goal. And so one thing that we highlighted on our September market outlook to our clients, we looked at M2 money supply, Mark, and we went back five years on the chart. And there's just a huge push up in money that's sitting in savings, checkings, money markets and CDs right now, a huge sum of money. 
And I would contend, and I know you agree with this statement, that at a certain point, probably after the election, that money has to go somewhere. People are not going to be content, in my opinion, mm-hmm. sitting on that money and earning a quarter, a half a percent. Mm-hmm. Or if they lock it up for 10 years in a 10-year treasury, 0.7, as you just mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. Which means, in my opinion, the market has a tailwind of money that has to go somewhere. Unless the Fed starts aggressively raising rates, which they're, they've previewed that they're not going to do. Exactly. Right? That's a good, good point. <laughs> yep. Um so I mean, so that may, I mean, maybe even you know that could get concerning if rates do get back to like five or six percent, which oh, I gonna think is going to take a long time. It'll gonna, provide competition for other other investment options. Yeah, specifically, I would even contend the asset class of dividend-paying stocks. Air quotes. Mm-hmm, right. You know, when those rates get higher, they become competition. Right. So, but until that happens, or until there's another investment vehicle that can give you that near-term cash flow, it's going to be hard to beat. The stock market, I think, over a longer period of time. Yep, not disagreeing. So, uh, last thing I had was a quote from blog, a blog post written by Ben Carlson on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense. And this was titled Bull Case, Bear Case. And it was written on August 30th. So, Ben says, One of the things I've learned in the investment business is it's never a good idea to trust someone who is 100% certain about any outcome in the markets. I've seen enough best idea portfolios over the years to know that most portfolio managers have no clue what their best ideas truly are until after the fact. There are simply too many unknowns and outside factors that can impact the economy, markets, sectors, and companies to ever give yourself position to have complete certainty about the future. Sure, strong opinions are fine, but they better be weakly held because the markets are a humbling place if you're not willing to look at both sides of an argument. And I think this this uh, idea of bias gets involved in too many people's heads. It gets involved in my own head, right? Mm-hmm. You're so you think you're so sure about something, and then that thesis just gets blown up because the market doesn't care what you think. No, the market doesn't care about your opinion. It's going to do what it's going to do, and I know it's so hard to let go of that. But you know, it, it really the market doesn't care about any of us. It really doesn't. So you have to come or try to come to terms with that emotionally, I think, to take a step in the right direction and being successful as an investor before you even get to picking individual stocks or ETFs or investment options. You need to come to terms with that emotionally that no one is going to be right 100% of the time. Uh, Be careful who you listen to because even professionals that do this for a living and have done it for a living for 30 years are still going to be wrong some of the time. And number three, again, emotionally, you have to deal with this, I think, before you even get into, you know, your investment thesis is accepting that you're never going to be right 100% of the time. Absolutely. So absolutely. I thought that that was just a good quote by Ben there. Uh, I'll turn it over to you. I got one mark for listeners. It um, It's from Bespoke. So we always highlight Bespoke um, uh, research. Uh, they do a lot of raw research for us. They highlighted forward-looking performance of the S&P 500 index after it hits a record high mark, then corrects over 2% in a single day. And then they statistically look at then the forward-looking returns back in history, okay? The data set has about eight or so data points, okay, looking back when this occurred. The forward-looking average return looking out one month, 
positive, surprisingly, 1.52%. Three months forward looking average, 6.05. And I thought that was uh, positive. Six months out, 8.77. And one year out, 15.12. So let's try to get this up on the show notes uh, for uh, yeah, it'll be on there, so uh, you know our, our listeners can it. see it. But again, yeah. another positive data point, just because you know the market sold off for three consecutive days, it's not the end of the world, right? Right. So other thing I like to share with our listeners is just uh, a series of three different stats that caught my eye. Okay, I'll say them, and then you give me your comments or opinion. Okay, mm-hmm. first. American consumers' demand for paper towels is 25% higher today than it was before the COVID epidemic hit the U.S. in February, or about six months ago, and that's according to Procter & Gamble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess on a personal level, me and my fiance are like obsessed with paper towels. So this has been just normal for us to have like a hoard of paper towels from Costco. And when we went through this and didn't, and we couldn't get that, it was like, Ah, what are we going to do? So we were getting out the the towels that we have to wash uh-huh. and put in the washer and dryer every week and stuff. But um, but yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, I never I never thought we would get, get to that point. And that's a massive you know, jump, especially when we were when we were seeing, you know, empty shelves and stuff back in February and March. I never thought that we would get to that point. And we did. I know. So um, just interesting. But I've always been a paper towel hoarder myself. So oh, you probably do it even more now. Yeah, exactly. All right, I got two more. Ready? 29% of stocks in the S&P 500 are down at least 20% year-to-date through the close of trading on Friday, August 28th. And so the source on that is BTN Research. And so, Mark, any comment to that? Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you that, you know, markets are made up of individual stocks, right? Mm-hmm. So, and especially with the S&P 500, they're tilted towards the larger stocks. So it's actually, if you think about it, the S&P 500 does a good job of weighting the outperformers in the stock market, if you think about it, mm-hmm. right? Because the larger a company gets, the usually the more their stock price is doing well and the more weight that gets in an index. So if you take, for example, you know, Apple or Amazon, Microsoft, they all have larger weights than most companies in the S&P 500 because their stock has been performing so well over the past couple of years. The largest of all of them. So it really is like, you know, it's almost if you if you think about it, it's not a a, a bad strategy because you get more exposure to the names that have been performing better. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that, you know, the stocks that are smaller in the S&P 500 won't begin to outperform eventually. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago when I gave you your quiz about the, the largest companies in, in the index. In history. Yeah, for decades at a time and how they change over time. It's, this is no different. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change eventually over time. However... There are still, you know, diamonds in the rough that you don't have to own only Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft to do well. You can find other names in an index that are going to do well, but you have times like we're going through right now where banks, um, financials, energy, energy, travel and leisure are those are the names that are down 20 percent year to date for a reason because of what we're going through with this pandemic. So, um, 
that's just it's an interesting stock, but it's it's funny that you know almost thirty percent of the stocks in the S and P five hundred are down at least twenty percent, and the index is positive for the year. But that's due to the market cap weighting the tilt towards these larger companies having a, a bigger piece of the pie in the S and P five hundred. You said it great, and the only thing I would add to it is this is my definition of a stock picker's market. Yeah, yeah, this is, absolutely. This is where stock pickers should be thriving. And then I got one more for you. How good was August, Mark? It ranked number seven in history for the S&P 500 index. So it's the best, I'm sorry, number seventh best performance for the S&P 500 in history for the month of August. So is that for the month or just out of all August? Out of all August data sets. Okay. For the S&P, as far back as it goes, it's number seven best performance. How do you say that? August? August is? What's August, the plural? August. Plural. August. <laughs> Mouse mice. Um, yeah. But that's. In, 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 when you look at the data set, I didn't uh, attach it to my notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say from memory, five of those were in regards to the early 30s when you had dramatic volatility. So it really stood out as a phenomenal August, in putting that month alone in history. Right. No, that's interesting. And, and that was from Bespoke on August 31st, by the way. Yeah. And I know we talked about this on the past, but everyone's very concerned about the election and what the market's going to do after the election and that type of thing. But again, in my opinion, the market wouldn't be acting this way if it was concerned about the election. You just I was going to say the same thing. Market, you know, you know, follow the tell on the market. I tell clients, don't watch the polls. The polls mean nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Watch the market. Yeah. And really, that goes back to everything that I kind of build my thesis off of is that everyone you know, out there talks about these fancy fundamentals and ratios and stuff. And it's just like, just, I just need to know what the market's doing. That's really it. The price just tells me everything I need to know, you know? Um, So yeah, going to be interesting nonetheless in November. And I think it could be, you know, there could be some interesting uncertainties if, you know, someone doesn't concede to the other. And I don't want to get into that right now, but that could pose some interesting things for the market. But um, but again, you know, that strong of an August ranked number seventh in history for the S&P 500 index. Again, not the definition of a weak market. More evidence of, of that statement. I would yeah. agree. Yeah. I'll turn it back to you, sir. So for the financial planning topic of the week, um, this week's article comes from Tom Welsh. And it's titled Five Lives. And he wrote this on the Humble Dollar back in August. And Tom details five phases we all go through in our financial lives. And those phases each have their own risks, trade-offs, and opportunities. So breaking your financial life down into phases can be helpful, I think, because you can identify where you are now and the steps you need to take to reach the next phases in your financial life. So there's things in here that I agree with and that I disagree with. So it'd be interesting to get your opinion on some of those. All right. And I obviously have not seen this yet. So here to get my fresh, raw opinion. (laughs) So number one is party time, ages 25 to 30. Your focus is your social life. And so it should be. Still amid all the fun, throw in some sober financial management. Avoid digging a hole for yourself with high cost consumer debt, notably credit card and car loans. 
Participate in your employer 401k plan at least up to the minimum required to get the full amount of any matching employer contribution. So this is one that's commonly missed. I think, Matt, that if your employer, for example, matches 401k contributions one for one up to 6% of your pay and you're only contributing 4%, you're literally leaving free money on the table. Got to get that to six in that And example. I don't know a single person who doesn't like free money. Are you going to pick up that $100 bill on the ground? You better believe I will. Yes, you are. <laughs> so again, uh, double check. And if you don't know what your company matches, double check it to make sure you're taking advantage of that full that full match. And a good excuse is this time of the year, open enrollment's coming up. Yes. Good time for you to review Go your through 401k, all your benefits, your beneficiaries, um, you know, how much life insurance is offered, you know, through the group term, if that is, you know, mm -hmm. this is a time to review all that. Yeah, flex spending accounts, healthcare savings yep. accounts, review all that stuff. Um, that just put a bug in my ear. Maybe next week we can do like a financial planning open enrollment checklist for people to, to go through with their Done. employers. Done, I think that's good, it's good timing here. Um, he says, finally, in your taxable account, which is just an investment account that you'll pay capital gains tax on, it's not a retirement account, try to save for the down payment on your first house using moderate risk investments such as investment grade bonds. And I want to add one other thing to this uh, point of or phase of life is that I would say aggressively paying down student loans with higher interest rates, I think also falls into this category because I've just seen too many situations where those start to get out of control. Yeah, we, we, we sit down with people in their 30s and they still have astronomical high balances because right. of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the second phase is what he calls early career, and this is ages 30 to 45. So this phase comes with the temptation of what he calls classification, borrowing to acquire large homes, expensive cars, and other status symbols so you appear a social class above what you can truly afford. A prudent goal in this phase is to have no debt other than a home mortgage and then pay off that mortgage as soon as possible. I'd advise doing so even if it means you invest less in stocks. So again, with the current environment that we're in, I don't necessarily agree with that because of how low interest rates are, but what is your opinion? He goes on to explain that I'm not going to get into that he thinks, you know, investment professionals and lending companies are biased to saying that because they make money off of it. But let's hear your opinion on that. Um, I would agree with you, Mark. I think with rates as low as they are, I think that um, it would uh, be as long as you're fiscally um, disciplined. You know, I think it makes sense to take advantage of these low rates right now, especially for homes. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I, I don't I don't fall into that camp what he's suggesting. I, and I think right now, if you took that excess and you had a systematic, you know, dollar cost average investment program into the market, pretty wise decision. Right. And I think I mean, I think you should start in, in the party time, ages 25 to 30 to be investing. So I don't think, you know, waiting until 30 or 45 is going to do you any good. But as, I mean, again, especially with low interest rates, you know, and just the way the market has been performing and the market, I believe, is in a secular bull market right now that hasn't ended yet. You know, I think we're going to see nice returns going forward the next couple of years. And I just think right now it makes more sense to to make more money with your money rather than, you know, paying off debt that has an interest rate of two, three, even four percent. I agree. Um, the next phase is late career. So this is ages 45 to 60. 
You enjoy peak earnings at work. Some parents offload college expenses to their kids by having their children take on student loans. In this phase, there's little reason to carry debt of any kind. By largely or entirely getting rid of debt and debt service payments in phase number two, you potentially lower your monthly living expenses and hence have a stronger free cash flow to invest for the future. At last, you can indulge at last you can indulge is that strategic long-term investment called stocks. Again, disagree that this is the phase to start aggressively investing into the market because uh, yeah, yeah. ages 45 to 60, I think. He's not talking about that in the 30 to 45 range? Yeah, he's he's hard on the on the mortgage, but what I mean, what so what if you're in a situation where you don't have a mortgage though when you're renting? Then I mean, I guess maybe that would alter his opinion on this, but Sure. Um you know, I, I do agree that for most people, it's better to have not a lot of debt. But if you're using, you know, if you are you have, you know, a line of credit that's at an extremely low rate that you're using to invest to grow for the future, then, you know, you can use debt to your advantage like that. But to keep it really basic, a lot of the time, it's better to have or the less debt, the better, I would say. Yeah, good rule Especially with, you know, consumer products like cars. Um, depreciating assets. Depreciating assets, exactly. Exactly. So um, phase four is early retirement. So this is ages 60 to 80, he says. So you stop working at some point during this phase. Gone is layoff risk. Now you face a new seldom discussed risk, discussed risk called prosperity risk. Throughout our working careers, we like prosperity with the rising paychecks it brings to many of us. But prosperity can be a double-edged sword. When we stop working, we're exposed to the backside of prosperity, which includes ever-rising consumer prices. That's why it helps to hold a significant amount of prosperity-loving stocks during this phase. Think of stocks as a way to hedge the threat that inflation poses to the fixed payments from your pension and bond portfolio. So I think what Tom is getting at here is he's describing the risk of retirees not having enough money or income to live the same way that they did during their working years. So with interest rates so low right now, again, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, people can't afford a 100% bond portfolio because they'll run out of money in retirement, quite simply. Agreed. And that's why retirees, I believe, need to still have some sort of exposure to the stock market. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that and we've talked about these lifestyle funds in the past, but one of these popular default options in these 401ks these days are these lifestyle funds. And a general rule of thumb is they are designed that the closer you get to your age 65, they get less and less stock exposure to depending upon the fund family mark, it gets down to 20 to 25% stock exposure at that time. And with rates as low as they are, there's a good chance that might not earn enough return to pay for your living expenses without digging into principal. Right, exactly. And it's funny you say that because his next sentence was review any target date investment products to see if they dump stocks too quickly. Give me a so. pen. <laughs> Give me the guy's site. I'm writing the next article. <laughs> so now that that is a good point. So um, you know maybe when you do get to that phase, phase four, it's time to, you know, maybe not have a, a bulk of of your investments in the target date funds. I don't know. It's it depends. I just think everybody. I just want to bring it up as something that I think the listeners, if they're in that situation, should be something that they review. Mm -hmm. I just. I'm not giving an opinion other than they need to be aware 
that it gets that low. Of how target date funds It gets work. that low of stock exposure. Right. Um, the last phase, phase number five, is late retirement, which he defines as age 80 plus. So he says, your priority has shifted from wealth to health. This is a time for most people to reduce their stock holdings as their crash recovery time window is closing. For security, you want to hold low to moderate risk assets to cover basic living expenses through until age 95 or 100. With any luck, successful management of the previous four phases has reduced money stress and now lets you enjoy family, friends, hobbies, and fond memories, including memories of all those crazy things you did during phase number one. <laughs> so, again, I think that it all starts with phase one and just starting off on the right foot and developing a plan. And as long as you follow that plan, you should be fine and have no problems. And three day sell offs should not be affecting should, your psyche. No, they should not. When you have that long term time horizon. No, they shouldn't even be a talking point, really. So, um, okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there for the week as we don't have any listener questions. Uh, we'll be back next week at our normal time. Um, so unless you have anything, Matt. Nope. We'll uh, listeners, you have questions, week. send them over to Mark. Mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. And we'll be back probably the middle of next week. Yep. So thanks for tuning in to the 62nd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. If you haven't checked out the back catalog of the previous 61 episodes, we encourage you to do so. And we hope that you all have a wonderful rest of the week and enjoy your weekend. Take care. For listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.